Hey everyone, Pastor Blake Harkup here from Bedrock, Sarasota. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome you to our podcast. We hope that you get to know God more, that you feel encouraged, and that you see how God's moving in your life from a brand new perspective. Enjoy today's message. This morning, we are continuing our series called Essentials. And this series is all about these essential elements to godly relationships. I don't know about you, but a lot of our relationships suffered through COVID, right? There was a lot going on and kind of maybe some of the cracks and some of the things that were kind of there kind of turned into crevices and maybe deep ravines. And so we talked about how to repair your mental mess, like how to get through this mental fog that we were all in. And now we're talking about how God wants us to have relationship and, and what that looks like. And so each one of these messages is really going to be on a different element of godly relationships. And we started off this series last week, and if you were with us, you might remember we started off with the first essential aspect of godly relationships is forgiveness. Forgiveness is vitally important to our relationships with others. If we don't have forgiveness, there will always be a barrier between us and other people. And remember, forgiveness is not saying, hey, what you did was okay, or what happened was okay, or even what you did was okay, but it is releasing this idea that everything, you need to make everything right, and you're going to trust God that he's going to make everything right. And what it does is it truly frees you. Forgiveness isn't for the other person, it's really for you to free you up. Well, today we're going to be getting into a different passage and another element, but here's kind of the hard thing about this series, um, and maybe we don't hear it a lot in church or we kind of hear it in a different way, but the honest to God's truth is, is that if you're going to have godly relationships, you can't wait for those relationships to happen to you. You have to make the first step, and you have to be the one to initiate, right? And this is the same way that God did this with us. He made the first step towards us. He came down from heaven to earth. He made the initial step. He, he crossed that barrier. And if you're going to have godly relationships, we can't make anyone else act or behave in any way. I think that's kind of what we want in our culture, right? Like we want to control other people's behavior, but really be okay with our own. And God says, nope, that's not the way that this works. It actually starts with you. There's a great book. If you've never read it, it's by a guy named Jocko Willicks. He really changed my life. Uh, this book did. And he was a former Navy SEAL. And what he did is he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. Extreme Ownership. If you've never read the book, I would really encourage you to do that. But in the book, he talks about this idea that you can't fix what you don't own. You can't fix things that you leave in the hands of other people. You have to own the problem and you have to go through it. Now, other people are going to have to help and do the work, but what you don't own, you can't fix. Apathy doesn't fix things. And so we have to realize that in this series, yes, we may need to see these godly relationship essentials in other people's lives and our relationship with them, but we got to take hold of what we can take hold of and move forward. Let's be the ones who initiate the very first step. And what you'll see is this. You think, oh man, this is all on me. And how is this going to work? And what do I need to do? And I don't really want to take the first step. But what you realize is when you take the first step, you take your first step towards freedom. You are actually making your first step towards freedom. Because when you love people, when you show forgiveness or all of these other aspects of godly relationships, you're the one who begins to experience freedom. 
Now, the other person, we talked about this, where there's collateral damage, there's also collateral grace. And when you show grace, because you've been shown grace, when you make that first step towards forgiveness or whatever else it is, the other person experiences it, and they begin to experience freedom too. Let me just ask you, anyone ever, was it, everyone was in middle school, right? And who remembers middle school dances? No one's going to dance until someone makes the first step, right? The guys are on that wall. The girls are on that wall talking. The girls are kind of dancing, and these are the guys, right? And until someone initiates the first step, ain't nobody dancing. There's going to be no freedom and no healing in your life until somebody makes the first step. That's going to be you. You're going to be the guy in the middle of the dance floor or the girl in the middle of the dance floor dancing by yourself and someone else, because there's collateral grace, is going to walk out and go, they look like a fool, I can look like a fool too. We were at a wedding a few years ago. This wasn't in my message last night. You guys are getting a little extra. Um, but a few years ago, we were actually at a wedding and my buddy Brad, he, he got married and that wasn't like a dancing crew. That, that crew was not a dancing crew. Kelsey and I, were a dancing crew, okay? At our wedding, they had to shut down. The DJ finally had to say, hey, guys, like, we've run out of time. we got to shut it down. And he's like, I've never had to shut a wedding down. And we were like, shut it down, right? And then all of our bridesmaids went back to my parents' house and, and groomsmen, and they hung out. The party continued, okay? And so... I was like, you know what? No one was dancing, and it was awkward. Like, the DJ is like, and everyone's just, like, eating their steak. And so I was like, you know what? I got to do something. So I went out to the middle of the dance floor by myself and danced like a fool. And you know what happened? Other people started coming out and dancing like fools. Kelsey was like, I can't believe you did that. And I was like, me neither, but look at what it produced. People are dancing. People are having a good time because I was willing to take some vulnerability, because I was willing to take a hit, because I was willing to be made fun of, because I was willing to do this, and I extended grace and made the first step, I was able to bring other people along. That's exactly what this series is like. Some of you are going to need to go dance in the middle of a dance floor like a fool, but what you'll realize is in your relationships, other people will come along. It's essential. It's essential. And here's what the reality is, is I was able to walk out there and look like a fool because my identity is not built in how well I dance. You can walk out in your relationships and potentially look like a fool because your identity is not in that. It's in, it's in Jesus Christ. Amen. And you, you can walk out there and be completely okay. So as I was thinking about this topic for today and this essential element, I got to tell you a story uh, about 12 years ago, 11 years ago, I don't know, we're getting old now. Uh, Kelsey was a kindergarten teacher when we first got married. And she was at this like private Catholic school, really small school. And there was a night where they had like, you know, the kindergarten sing-along. Those are the worst, okay? I'm just going to be honest, okay? And so there's like a kindergarten sing-along. And Kelsey was like, for some reason, teachers feel a lot of pressure in that moment. Like, parents are going to judge the entire year based upon how well these five- and six-year-olds sing. And so Kelsey was feeling the pressure. And so she comes to me, and she says, hey, are you coming to my kindergarten sing-along or whatever? I was like, no, I'm not coming to the sing-along. And she's like, like, 
really, please, can you come? So I was like, uh, no, I don't want to be the 23-year-old single guy in the audience. It's like, who's your kid? Oh, I don't have any kids. I'm just here for the entertainment. You know, like, that's weird. And so it's like, okay. And Kelsey's like, no, please, like, please come. I need you to be there. I'm super nervous. And, and there's just a lot riding on it. And you being there, I'll feel really supported. So I started to think about all the ways that this would inconvenience me. Well, I'm going to look like a weirdo. Oh, I'm going to waste my night to come here, not even have dinner. I'm going to have to come straight from work to watch a bunch of kids that I don't know that honestly I don't really care about sing in a bad way like, oh, this is going to be great. All right? And then like, what, what am I going to do? And, and then I got to meet these kids and I'm kind of a germaphobe and little kids, they like to like touch my hands, you know, and then they're like picking their nose and like, Mr. Hargup, and you're like, get away from me. All right. And so I actually ended up, I ended up going, Okay. Because what really happened in that story is, is like, I had to get over me to be there for Kelsey. And it's a little thing. She didn't say, can you sing with the kids? Can you lead the kids? Can you play with them? Can you, like, come up with an activity? I just had to sit in the audience. And so I felt like the biggest celebrity in the world. I walked back to her classroom as they're getting prepped. You know, those kids are freaking out. Right? And I walk in, and as soon as I walk in, they're like, Oh, Mr. Hargup! Ah! They're screaming, and I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Right? And they're like, oh! And they're like giving me five, and some kids want hugs. And I was like, no. All right? And then, so here's the deal. We walk in, and, and this, this one kid, his name was Justin, uh, he was a super cool kid, lived with his grandma, uh, didn't have a dad, and so he walked up to me, and he was just like amped, amped. He was like, oh, Mr. Harkin, what's up? And I was like, you're excited. And he's like, yeah, right? And so later in the day, so I'm sitting in the audience kind of right out here, okay? I sit in the back because I don't want to look weird. My buddy Brad came with me, the guy whose wedding I danced at, right? And he, we're sitting in the back, and we're these two young guys sitting in the back, and I'm just like, I just got to get through this moment. And so the kindergartners come up, and Justin stands right here and, like, get through the first song. And then all of a sudden, they're like, Justin's like this. And I was like, oh, look at that kid, right? And so then, like, he's like, and I was like, oh. And then he did it again. And Brad looks at me and he goes, hey, man, I think this joker's waving at you. And I was like, I think so too, but I'm not getting too involved. So I, like, I looked at the kid and he's like, and I go, just a nod, a nod. This, this dominated his life. As soon as I nodded, he was like, oh, on the stage. And I, me and Brad, then really immature, I laughed so hard I fell into the aisle because I was like shook by this kid. And so the night ended, it went really well. And at the end of the night, we have one, I have a great story, but two, Kelsey felt really supported. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. The topic that we're going to be talking about is compassion. To have essential, godly relationships, you need compassion. Right, like even that kid, Justin, by me extending grace and looking towards him in that moment, my compassion excited him. The fact that I was able to acknowledge him in that moment, but also my compassion extended towards Kelsey. Did I want to be there? No. Did I want to really do this? No. Was it really a highlight of my life? Definitely not, right? But Kelsey and I bonded in that moment because I was willing to be there for her in her need, right? Compassion is defined as this sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together 
with a desire to alleviate it. That's the Merriam-Webster dictionary title. Let me just kind of define for you biblically what compassion is. Compassion is where grace and mercy meet and move. That's what compassion is. Where grace, giving people what they do not deserve, and mercy, not giving people what they do deserve, meet and move in action. That's exactly what compassion is. And that's what we're going to be studying today. And so if you have your Bible with you, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't freak out. We put the words on the screen for you, okay? I would always encourage you to bring your Bible. I think it's just special to open up the Word. And you can do it on your device. And if you don't have a Bible, we have free rooms right in the back for you. It's a gift for you. They don't cost anything. And so let's jump into God's Word. Uh, Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. So here's what's happening in this story. Jesus is teaching a lot of people, and in fact, 72 of his disciples had just gone out and done ministry and are on their way back. They're coming back to Jesus, and they're kind of reporting on what's happened. And Jesus is going to begin to teach them all of these things, but he tells this incredible story where this lawyer, or possibly a Pharisee, someone who really understood God's word and God's law, stood up and asked Jesus a question. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, which is a term of respect, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is always a question that so many of us have. And let me just ask you, are you looking to just inherit eternal life? Are you looking to have eternal life and how that affects your life now? So many of us just want to get eternal life and be good. What Jesus says is it's not really about the eternal life. It's about the life that you live here as well. Eternal life with Jesus is the icing on the cake. It's salvation. So Jesus says this. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Always a very dangerous question when you ask someone, how do you interpret this, right? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is exactly right, right? Even this guy, he quotes to Jesus out of Deuteronomy what's called the Shema, which is a prayer that Jews say every day. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind and with all of your soul and all of your strength. Right? Like in everything that you do, love God first. And let me just tell you something. When you are really in love with someone, have you noticed that you begin to love what they love? Like Kelsey, she loves this show called The British Baking Show. I don't know if I'm in love with it yet, but I'll, I tolerate it. Every night before we go to bed to calm us down, we watch these people in a baking competition, and it's the same old thing, okay? But here's the deal, and then Kelsey's like, I'm going to make that, and I'm like, you are? We haven't made anything yet, but we're getting there, okay? We went to Paris like six years ago, and she's like, I'm going to make croissants. These changed my life. Still haven't seen a croissant, but we're on our way, okay? We're on our way. We did have macaroons the other day. That was great. And so what happens is is when you love someone, you begin to love what they love. When you love God, you're going to love what he loves. And God loves people. And so what happens here is he's exactly right. He says, you shall love God, and then what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, this is Jesus, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love God, love people. 
Okay, do this and you will live. What does he mean? Eternally, absolutely, but you'll also live in this life. But he, desiring to justify himself, we got a smart aleck on our hands. Anybody a smart aleck? Yeah, real sarcastic. Some of you are raising smart alecks. Some of you were the smart aleck. I was the smart aleck, right? Uh, we have a daughter who is a smart aleck. She parses words like ain't nobody's business. And we're like, did you hit your sister? I didn't hit them. We have to rephrase. Did you slap your sister? Yes, I did slap her. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, did you, you know, did you hit them with your fist? No, not my fist. No, 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 no. Open-handed, right? Like, wham! Right? And so she's going to be a lawyer. That's what this guy is. He's a smart aleck. And he says this. All right, I'm going to try to trip you up, Jesus. Anyone ever do that, that you ask a question to make the other person look inferior? You, you like, you don't love someone, so you, I'm going to embarrass you with a question that I think is going to trip you up so that I look smarter and better than you. That's what's going on here. And he says this. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? That's exactly where we find the beginning of this story. And so Jesus does what he always does. He uses the Socratic method of teaching. Anyone know what the Socratic method of teaching is? We talk about this at university all the time. It's teaching through questions. You ask questions to get people to think and begin to, to deal with a dilemma or a problem so that they can then begin to kind of put it into their heart and into their mind. When I teach ethics, this is how I teach. You can't tell people ethics. You can give them problems and say, what's the ethical way to operate in this situation? And Jesus does this. That's what parables are. Have you noticed that sometimes parables are a bit confusing? Why? Because Jesus wants you to interact with the material. He wants you to wrestle through it. He wants you to deal with it. Why? Anyone ever live in a Google world or you look up Google and you look up the answer but you don't really remember it ever because the information's so easily accessible? You're like, Google, hey Siri. I gotta make sure they don't turn on, right? <laughs> and so what happens is, is because you didn't fight for the answer, you don't remember it. And so Jesus many times teaches in parables and, and he asked questions. And so that's exactly where we find ourselves in the story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is up in the mountains, about 2,500 to 3,000 feet above sea level. And Jericho is near the Dead Sea. And so you have to go down to go see it. In fact, if you come with us to Israel, there's like two spots left. I'll take you on a road just like this. And we'll read Psalms of Ascent as we go into Jerusalem. And so while he's on this road, this is a famous road, but there is always treachery on the road. And this guy, he fell among robbers. And this guy just didn't get pickpocketed. This guy got robbed, okay? Like if you walk in down a street and you got clothes on, and at the end of it you don't have any clothes on, you got robbed. Right? Like, they, where's my wallet? He's like, where's my pants? Right? And so here's what happens. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and then beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And so he is there in this moment, half dead. See, what you and I realize in this moment is that there's this incredible story happening. This guy, he's in the worst of worst positions. He's probably Jewish, likely Jewish, because he's coming from Jerusalem 
down to Jericho, and these guys go and they jump him. They rob him, but they don't just rob him. They beat him half to death, and so he ends up in a ditch. So look what happens here. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So by chance, this priest, this religious leader of the time, this morally superior person walks by and sees a guy half dead in a ditch, and instead of walking over and helping him, he immediately goes to the other side of the road. Anyone ever done that? You say, I wouldn't do that. Anyone ever walk on the other side of the road with a homeless person sitting on the street? I mean, we can't even acknowledge people who are homeless enough to walk past them let alone say hello, or let alone give to them. And you say, well, they're just going to buy bad things. Well, doesn't Jesus give you gifts that sometimes you do bad things with? Does he withhold the gift? I don't want to enable. Okay, so don't give them money, give them food. Give them clothes. Whatever you need to do. Jesus said he came for the sick and the widows and the poor. In fact, Jesus, whenever he entered a city, always found the sickest, weakest, poorest people first. Now, that's an analogy for those who are spiritually sick, weak, and poor. And so Jesus goes into this moment and he says that there's this priest who walks by. And what you have to understand in this part of the passage is that the priest was thinking more about himself and religion than he was about the mission. See, mission will always be greater than religion. Mission is always greater than religion. And here's what I mean by that. This priest, there's this uh, theology of the day that Jews could not touch a dead person. Only if you were a very, very close family member could you touch a dead person. And if you did touch a dead person or dead animal, you were ceremonially unclean. You were ceremonially unclean, and so this priest couldn't go into the temple to offer sacrifices and to do things like this. And so what he was really concerned about is kind of upholding his religious integrity instead of being missional in reaching those who are most sick and most lost. See, in this scenario, religion trumped mission. And I would say to this moment, is this true religion? Is this really like God-inspired moment in time? No, he sees the one who's most in need and goes across to the other street. But how many times when Israel was most in need would God show up for them? He, He, through his theology, through his understanding, missed the whole point. Because he was thinking more about himself. See, his care for himself led him to care less for others. His care for himself led him to care less for others. Compassion is this thing where it's outward focused. Compassion leads us to move. And can I just say this to all of us real quick? It is definitely outward focused, but can you just be a little bit more compassionate with yourself? Some of us, because we're so judgmental towards ourselves, are judgmental to everybody else. Now, what does that mean? Compassion meets grace and mercy and moves in action, but compassion wants to take people from where they are to where they need to be. So, compassion is not an excuse. 
compassion is not relativism. Well, it's all okay and what I'm doing is okay because is there really any truth? No. Compassion goes, I'm going to meet you where you are with mercy and grace and take you to where you need to be. In the same way, you and I need to be compassionate with ourselves. Yes, we need to have forgiveness and grace towards ourselves, but we also, through the power of God, need to move to where we actually need to be. And so, we have to realize that mission, the mission of God is always going to trump religion. What do I mean by that? Like, if there is a homeless person outside right now, and you had to stay out there to help them instead of coming in here, that always wins. You say, but this is church. Well, God doesn't have like a a marker on, on like, if you attend church this many times, you're holy and good. Now, should we attend church? Absolutely. Why? Because this is where we become filled. This is where we hear the word. This is where we grow in our faith to go do the mission. You guys realize that this isn't the climax of the week. This is the start of it. This is the start of what happens in here as a catalyst for what happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And the reason that we do groups in our church is not because we need you to be busy. We think that you might need a top off in the middle of the week. We're like, oh, tank's half empty. Great. Let's fill it up. Let's get together with Christians. Let's hear about God. Let's worship and pray together. Let's get in community together because out there sometimes can be really tiring. So we need to huddle together to become equipped and to go out and to do the work of the ministry. That's why this moment is so important and why like watching online or not going to church, I hear a lot of people, it's just me and Jesus. Well, that's funny because Jesus told you to get with other people. And so the story moves on quickly, but we see that this priest, this holy person, he missed it. He missed that religion became more important than mission. Because here's the reality. Yes, he would have been inconvenienced, but he could have become ceremonially clean again. It just would have taken some work. I don't need the inconvenience. I'm just going to move on. So, selfishness kills compassion. But then there's this other guy who shows up in the story. Look at what it says here in verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, this is really important. We miss this in our translation from the Greek, but what the Greek puts this special emphasis on the word pass by. What it means is is this guy actually walked up and came close and looked at him. Oh, he's half dead, not dead. Okay, I'm going to move to the other side of the street and pass on by. The Levite had to deal with the same ceremonial issues as the priest. Right? He, he, but this, at least it gets a little bit better. At least he showed some interest. Right? Like, at least, like let me go check this out. But that would be like me. Uh, a couple years ago, I, was, uh, I worked at a golf course in high school, and there was this day where I was a cart guy. Right? So I was in the cart barn. I was cleaning carts, whatever. And so there's this day that I'm there, and I hear this ambulance rip up to the golf course. And I was like, what's going on? And my boss ran outside, and he did. And the golf course, the ambulance guy said, hey, we just got a call. There's a guy. He's having a heart attack on the 10th green. We need to get to the 10th green. So my boss was like, Blake, go get in a car, drive. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was hauling. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a hero, right? I got in, I maxed that golf cart out, wing, 
right? I'm like driving through the course. People are teeing off. I'm dodging balls. I'm going. I get to the street because the ninth hole and the tenth hole are separated by a road. And so I like get there. I cross over the road. I didn't even look both ways. Oh, that's how intense I was, right? Cross over. Squeal the wheels, right? Break. Get to the tenth green. No, sir, stop. I'm a hero. Don't tee off. There's a man. He's having a heart attack. I'm a hero. The ambulance pulls up. There it is, boys. They, they drove that thing onto the golf course. I was like, no, you're not. Okay, it's fine. Like, go ahead. You're not. Don't drive it on the green, though, bro. Right? So he gets up there, and they end up saving this guy's life. See, I was interested in what was happening, but I really wasn't involved. I, if I told you I'm a hero, I saved this guy's life. I stopped a guy from teeing off on the 10th hole. You're like, you didn't, what? You didn't do anything. The, the paramedics are the, guy, the guys who saved the life. You were just interested. You weren't really involved. That's exactly what the Levite was like. He was interested. Let me go take a look. But he wasn't involved. See, compassion will lead us to involvement. That's what it is. Otherwise, it's just sympathy or empathy. Sympathy is like, man, that really stinks. That guy's half dead in a ditch. My bad. That's, that's terrible. On the other side... Empathy is like, man, I, I feel what you feel. Grace and mercy meet and move. That's what compassion is. See, the Levite was interested, but he wasn't involved. But here's what you and I have to understand. There's a third person who enters into this story. And if you are familiar with parables or teaching in this way at this time, the third person always is the one who changes the story. But see, if you remember... At the beginning of this, we found out that the guy who got robbed is Jewish. Now, you have to understand some context for what is about to happen. Let's read it, and then we'll jump in, starting in verse 33. But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, look at what it says, he had, what's that word? Compassion. There's our word. He had compassion. This Samaritan gets into this moment, and he goes, oh, I see that this guy is having a problem, and the Bible says that he has compassion. What is compassion? Where grace and mercy meet and move. And so the Samaritan stops, but you have to understand what the Bible's saying here. See, for the Jewish hearers of this story, this would have been offensive, because Samaritans and Jews were the worst of enemies. Samaritans were this group of Jewish people who were put into captivity by the Assyrians. Some of the Jews who were taken into Assyrian captivity would not have relations or get married or anything like that to the Assyrians. But the Samaritans, they did get married and they had children and the Samaritans are the offspring of that moment. And so the Jews looked at the Samaritans as these people who were these half-breed people who should be despised among everybody else. So for a Jewish person to hear this story, a Samaritan is the one who's stopping to start helping who surely he would be able to identify as a Jew. Let me just tell you, everyone, you might know the story of the woman at the well. She's Samaritan. She doesn't understand why Jesus as a teacher of the law would even address her. That's how bad things were at this time. 
And so he begins to stop, but let me just tell you something. See, compassion comes from within. The word that's translated compassion in the Greek actually comes from this root word that means from within. So compassion isn't really something that we can fake. It has to come from within and what's happened to us. And so in this story, this compassion enters the moment, but let me just tell you something. That Samaritan would have surely felt hurt because they were classed as a second-class citizen. Maybe even a bot, like when you talk about citizenship and, and the rank of citizens at this time, they were below slaves. I mean, that's, they're the bottom of the barrel. That must have hurt. In fact, the Samaritans build their own temple. The Jews end up destroying it because they want to worship God as well. That's what the whole story of the woman at the well, she says, where are we supposed to worship? You say Jerusalem, we say here on this mountain because of our father Jacob, are you greater than he, right? She's getting into the religion. What you need to understand was the Samaritans had religion too. Mission just trumped it here. See, this Samaritan had compassion. And let me just tell you something, hurt is never wasted. For believers, hurt is never wasted. I guarantee you that because this Samaritan had experienced so much hurt in his life, he experienced compassion when he saw other hurting people. Like, sometimes when you're real young, you're really quick to judge everybody in the world because you haven't experienced hurt in your life yet. Oh, how could they act like that? Oh, how could they do that? Oh, you know, in, in comparison kills compassion. I would never do that. Live a little bit. Live a little bit and you begin to see what happens. But what we understand from this story is that from within this Samaritan, the least likely person to show compassion does it. See, because what happened is, is he served his worst enemy. See, we all want to just show compassion towards people that we love. That's not compassion, that's like. That's love. Compassion is really seen when we serve our worst enemy. And that's exactly what the Samaritan did. That person, half dead in a ditch who's naked, was his worst enemy in this world. And the Bible says that it drove him to compassion because what had happened in him, because mission trumps religion. See, the Samaritan would have had to deal with the same ceremonial uncleanness that the priest and the Levite did. He would have had to deal with the same exact things, but what we see in the Samaritan, because he had experienced hurt, and because God had radically transformed his life, his hurt was never wasted, and he began to show compassion. And look at what it says in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20. This is so important. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What Jesus is saying, let's get to the heart of the matter. It's a heart issue. And then the story goes into this incredible aspect of what happens. See, because compassion is mission over religion. It's not just interest, it's involvement. And it's where hurt is never wasted. See, some of you are compassionate to people, to the people that have experienced the same thing you have. 
You hear about a person going through the same thing that you deal with, so your heart goes out to them, and you reach out to them, and you provide for them in many ways, but see, compassion always provides. Look at what happens in this story, and this is radical, by the way. Matthew 28, look at what it says. He went to find him and bound up his wounds. Verse 34, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, compassion isn't just interest, it's involvement. And this guy begins to take all that he has to ease the pain and begin to heal this individual. See, the wine right there represents healing because the wine would be poured on all of those wounds from that beating and the the alcohol in the wine would be like an antiseptic and we begin to prevent against infection. They didn't understand that at this time. They just knew you were to pour wine on wounds to begin healing. Do you think that there could be a connection with Jesus' blood that is the wine, and when we receive it, that healing begins? And then the oil. The oil was used, the olive oil was used to pour out into the wound, and it it worked like Advil. It began to soothe the pain. And so this Samaritan, towards his worst enemy, doesn't know what this guy did, doesn't know if he's the worst person in the world because compassion is not built on the worst of people. It's about believing in the best and helping people move from where they are to where they need to be. Who in your life needs compassion from you that you need to help them move from where they are to where they need to be? See, the oil was to begin to heal the pain. And then this guy touches this, you know how weird it would be and socially awkward it would be to pick up a half, like a naked, half-dead guy? This guy's naked, half-dead in a ditch, and the Samaritan, because he's not so worried about himself, will be willing to go and face judgment, persecution, for the benefit of another. You know what the Samaritan did? he walked out to the dance floor and began to dance. Because it wasn't about him. It was about somebody else. And so he does this, and he picks him up, and then he puts him on his own animal. Like his horse or his donkey. Maybe a modern-day translation would be his Ferrari. Lamborghini. Right? Like he's putting him in his Ferrari. Like that's the Ferrari of the day. And he puts him on his own horse. And so what does that mean? At expense of his own comfort, he goes to begin to take this guy to this incredible moment. See, compassion provides. It provided a way to make it easier to heal. This guy couldn't walk, so instead of tying him by the ankle and dragging him behind his Ferrari, he puts him in it, and he walks at the inconvenience of himself. He puts the guy on the horse and begins to walk him where he needs to go. See, compassion takes you from where you are to where you need to be. And then when he gets to the inn, he stays and begins to help heal him. He provided a place for him to heal. And notice what the Bible says. We miss this all the time. Denarii in this time is really important. It's a day's wage. Listen to what historically would have required to to, uh, pay for a night at an inn. 
According to the historian Polybus, a man could secure accommodation in inns in Italy in this time, about 150 B.C., for half a day, for uh, half as a day, i.e., like an example would be for one thirty-second of a denarii, you could buy a day. Imagine you paying and giving someone enough money to stay at a place for 64 nights. That's what two denarius. He paid for the accommodation for this dude for 64 days. See, to him, it didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter what he had done. It didn't matter if he was in trouble. It didn't matter if he was the worst person in the world. He's not called to judge that. He's called by Christ to be compassionate. We let Jesus deal with the rest. We let Jesus deal with who the person is. We let Because what you don't realize is, yeah, that guy who got robbed, maybe he robbed somebody else. Maybe he just got done dismissing his whole family. Maybe he just got done doing something terrible. The, Jesus isn't dealing with that. He's saying this is about you, not them. And so he begins to do this. So he bought 64 nights. He provided a safe place for this guy to heal from being half dead. But what else did he do? When you buy 64 nights, you give him time. He gave this guy time to heal his worst enemy in this world. See, compassion always moves us towards people and not away. When we are able to forgive ourselves and others, we are able to move towards people again. See, forgiveness is the first key, but compassion is going to drive us towards people. But if we're living in unforgiveness, we'll never be driven towards people because they're the ones who wound us. So forgiveness is the first step. Compassion is the second step. Let me just tell you something. Compassion for another person in your life might be that you're praying for them. And let me just tell you something. It's really hard to hate people you pray for. It's really hard to hate people that you pray for. You're showing compassion. Can we just stop trying to find the worst in everybody right now? Have you noticed that our whole culture is about finding the worst in everyone? We just want to vilify everybody, make them the enemy. People aren't the enemy. Jesus says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers of darkness. Fight the right battle. Show compassion to those who need it most. But see, Jesus, Jesus flips this story, and he begins to uh, really flip it. He says, basically, you and I, we're asking the wrong question. He's saying, who's my neighbor? Right? Look at what Jesus says, verse 36. Which of these three, this is Jesus talking, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Begrudgingly, this guy, this Jewish person who is an expert in the law, probably said this, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What Jesus is saying is, is it's not who's your neighbor. The real question is, who are you being a neighbor to? Did you catch that? The question isn't who's your neighbor. The question is, who are you being a neighbor to? See, that's the thing about the Bible and Jesus. Jesus isn't getting up in everybody else's stuff. He's getting in your stuff. He always has been. Because he understands this. We can't change other people. We can only change ourselves. But when we change, there's collateral grace, and that begins to affect other people. Who do you need to show grace to? Who do you need to show mercy to? Who do you need to begin in this moment to show compassion towards? They don't deserve it. 
no one said that the guy in the ditch did. I don't think the Samaritan goes, hey man, can you just tell me about your life real quick? I know you're half dead, but do you deserve my compassion? I have a Ferrari right here. I'm about to put you your bloody body in. You're going to mess up the seats, right? Like, uh, could you just tell me about your life real fast? Can't talk? Okay, I'm going to move on. No, didn't care about any of that. He immediately began to heal. He immediately began to ease pain. He immediately began to make it easier. He immediately began to provide a place. He immediately began to give him time. So, who are you being a neighbor to? See, there's three things that I really believe get in the way of compassion. First is judgment. When we're so busy judging ourselves and others, you'll be really quick to not extend compassion or grace or mercy. Let me just tell you something. God is the only judge. You say, what about the worst of people? I think we're going to see something really incredible in this moment about the story. So, judgment. True compassion doesn't see right or wrong. It sees need. True compassion doesn't see right or wrong. It sees need. And comparison comparison will kill compassion, right? Uh, don't you know how bad my life is? Why would I help them? Don't you know that I have need? Why would I give to them? Do you know that the blessing is in the giving? Do you know that the blessing is in the serving? See, all of us want these extra blessings from God. Sometimes the blessing is just doing what God says and not living with the opposite, Right? We all want like above, I want, if I, God, if I give you $10, I want you to turn it into a million dollars so I can buy a house for me. And Jesus says, compassion and giving isn't about you, it's about others, so you're missing the whole point of this. Could you get a, a mansion? Absolutely. But when your heart is towards others, you'll be ready to receive the mansion. When your heart is towards yourself, you'll squander it. You know what NFL stands for? Not for long. I know a couple NFL players, guys, who played in the NFL. Did you know that 80% of NFL players will be bankrupt four years after they retire from the NFL? Why? Because their heart wasn't really ready to receive the gift. How many of us think if we just got all these blessings from God, we'd be ready? And he says, no, I'm not going to give you those blessings right now because to you it would be a curse. Because every gift in the wrong season is a curse and every curse will demolish you. So maybe the one thing that you're praying for most about, God says, wait, we got to get your heart ready to receive this. I don't want this blessing to kill you. That's what compassion is. We don't care about what the other person does. So let me ask us just some quick questions, and then I'm going to wrap this all up. How are we seeing compassion in our relationships with others? Like today, we're going to give you a chance to respond. Maybe you need to grab the hand of somebody and walk down here and begin to extend grace and mercy. Mercy is not giving people what they do deserve. Grace is giving them what they don't. How are you extending compassion in your relationships right now? Are you willing to accept compassion from others? See, sometimes because our, we're our worst judge, when other people offer us grace and mercy, we won't receive it because we know how bad we are. That's not how God's economy works. But let me ask this. Are you accepting the compassion from God? That's where it all starts. When we receive from God compassion, we're able to give compassion. 
Because what you realize really quickly is you're a recipient of mercy and grace. And that so humbles you that you're ready to give it out to others. Because what you realize is God has so graciously lavished things upon you that you do not deserve that you have to repay it back to the world. See, in this story, a lot of us will begin to identify with like, I'm the good Samaritan. Wrong. Jesus is the good Samaritan in the story. We're the Levite, we're the priest, or we're the guy dying in the ditch. See, we all, like, that's what, you guys go be the good Samaritan. What you have to realize that in the story, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one who has now, because of mercy and grace and compassion, left heaven to come to earth. See, Jesus is seeing our dilemma, seeing that you and I were dead in a ditch, half naked, not able to move, left heaven to come to earth to die for you and I. He's the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who now is not only healing your wounds, which is the blood of his death, but he's easing your pain. And not only is he easing your pain, he's making it easier for you to heal. And when he makes it easier for you to heal, he provides a safe place that's in his presence, with his spirit, in his church. This is a place for healing. We always say this, the church is meant to be a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. This should be a place of healing. And not only that, Jesus has bought you time. Time to heal. Time to realize that. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And see, Jesus was being the good Samaritan in this exact story. He is the one who is saving us. And so right now, just in this moment, I want all of you to respond in just the way that you are. Who are you in the story? Are you the Levite? Are you the priest? Are you the one in the ditch? But see, because if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can move towards the Good Samaritan. Because of what Jesus has done in you, you can now do that for others. But that's the beginning. The beginning is Jesus. And for some of us, the gospel is something that we left behind years ago. The band's going to come up right now, and we're going to sing in just a second. But see, for so many of us, We've, we've kind of lost the gospel. See, we thought the gospel was to save us for eternity. The gospel does save you for eternity, but it's also here to rescue your life. And how many of us need to proclaim the gospel in our life every day to be reminded of the compassion and grace that God has expressed to us. Thank you for jumping into today's message, and we truly hope that you were encouraged. If you were encouraged, would you like and share this with someone that you truly love and care about? It may just be the thing that they need to get through this week. Also, let us know how the message impacted you, and please let us know any ways that we can be praying for you. But finally, I just wanted to take a minute to thank all of our supporters and those who give generously to make all that we have and do here at Bedrock happen. If you'd like to support us, you can do that really quickly by texting 84321 with any amount and setting up text to give, or you can give on our website. Thank you once again for all that you do, and we hope to see you soon.